0: The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Matthew chapter 4, we're in the same text that we were in last week, verses 1 through 11, uh, dealing with the temptation of Jesus. As you navigate in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, I want you to hear the words of the Apostle Peter, Found in 1 Peter 5, verses 8-10, through he writes and it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. What we're going to look to this morning a lack of understanding what we're going to look to this morning has led to all sorts of believers living lives that are practically of zero use to the kingdom of God. Uh, Many believers have no real joy in their salvation. Many believers find no real soul satisfaction in studying the Word of God and reading the Word of God. They, They never really gain anything from it. Uh, many believers have broken family lives and uh, divorces and and strained relationships with with relatives and even with children. The the list could go on and on of believers who who though they have come to a place of believing upon Christ as Lord and Savior, the, their lives that they're living are not. Are not being lived in light of that and in the fruit of that salvation being worked in their life because of this one reason. They they have never learned how to fight and stand against temptation. They, they've never learned the principle even that Jesus is going to set before us by his example this morning to, to fight against the temptation of the devil himself that is constantly put before us, especially those of us who are believers, to lead us astray, to lead us back into the sin that God has saved us from, to lead us to live a life that's practically of no use to the kingdom of God, and even at times is a detriment to the kingdom, because the, the bad witness that's given through the sins of God's people, who so easily are led astray, who so easily, constantly, consistently, involved themselves in sins that Christ has saved us from. Last week we saw in this wilderness temptation that Jesus vindicated himself once again as the sinless son of God. That that he truly is the second Adam, the one who came to undo in his righteousness all that Adam did in his sinfulness. When Adam fell and all the consequences of sin came into this life, into this world, Christ is showing Himself in His life, in all of these uh, stories recorded about Him, that He is the true sinless Son of God. He is God incarnate, our perfect representative, the one who will take our place representing us in righteousness, and the one who will also take our place bearing the penalty of our sin at Calvary. That Jesus here, in verse 1 we looked at, was led by the Spirit of God immediately following His baptism into the wilderness, into a desert place, for the intent purpose of being tempted by the devil. For the intent purpose that God, through this temptation, may manifest the sinlessness, the sinless nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that not only did this vindicate His sinlessness, but it also put before us an example, a pattern that we are to follow. I summed it up in our closing last week and mentioned we're going to dwell on that subject in this message, which we will do, but I made the point last week that I must reiterate that the example that Jesus sets forth, the pattern that he gives to us here, is not a pattern for an unbeliever to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, follow the example of Jesus, and be able to defeat the sin in their life and make themselves righteous before God, justified before God. So many people that are lost look to the life of Jesus as if that's what it was. He set this grand example for humanity, and if we can only embrace that sort of living, if we can only, you know, produce that work within us to follow the actions of Jesus, then we will be all right. We're going to be made right before God. That, that is not what, what the pattern or example that is set here before us is about. Uh, the reality is you and I are dead in our sins and trespasses without Jesus. There's nothing in your righteousness that you can do to earn the, 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 the salvation of God, to overcome your sinfulness, to justify yourself before God, and truly you're unable to live this life apart from Christ. You can try, but you'll fail. And only the sinless Son of God was able to live this life. Now now the beauty of what Christ does for us as believers, when we repent and turn to Him and confess Him as Lord and Savior, call out to Him for salvation of His grace and of His mercy, He forgives our iniquity, He paid the penalty for it at Calvary, but He also gives to us His Holy Spirit. We're indwelt with the Spirit of God. He frees us from the chains of sin that have ensnared us, and He gives to us the ability now to live for Him, of His grace and of His mercy. He He saves us in order that we may manifest the fruits of our salvation. He, he, he saves us by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but verse 10 follows where His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He begins to work in us. And He gives us the ability now to follow His example because He is at work in us to accomplish it, to do it. And so I say all of that to give a stern warning before we enter into this message on the example of Jesus to overcome temptation. This is only for believers. This is only possible for those who have Christ in you, for those who have the Spirit indwelling within you, for those who have been forgiven of their sins and, and even the bondage of sin being broken by the grace of God in your life, for you who are Christians this is an example that Jesus sets before us that we now have a pattern to follow. That we may now come to understand how is it that I can stand against the roaring lion, against the fiery darts that he throws our direction, the temptations that he, he baits the hook and dangles before our face. Hear me in Christ, you have the ability to overcome because he has overcome. And he gives us a pattern here to follow. He set an example before us that we may learn from him and that we may follow in his footsteps. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took Him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed Him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And He said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship Me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. It has long been noted, and I think rightly noted, that these temptations follow the description of, of what is in this world that John gives to us in First John chapter two verses fifteen and sixteen, uh, you don't need to turn there. Just listen to First John, John two fifteen and sixteen. John writes and he says, "Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world." I see a parallel in these temptations, as have many, for many generations, seen a parallel. that The temptations listed here follow the pattern of those those, those descriptions of what the world offers, what the world dangles before us to lead us astray from God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so what I want us to do this morning is to Walk through these temptations of Jesus more in depth, examining it more in depth, considering all the, the implications of what it says. And I want us to close by looking to just three short, quick, easy applications. And really, they're just it's one application. What is the pattern that Jesus sets before us? How is it that you and I can follow Jesus in fighting temptation that Satan puts before us on a daily basis? So first, let's look to this first temptation. The first temptation, which ties into the lust of the flesh. The the desires that are naturally within us, even God-given desires, that, that Satan tempts us to fulfill in ways that are contrary to God, in ways that are apart from the way God has given for us to fulfill them. This temptation is seemingly the most innocent of the three as we kind of read through the the three things Jesus was tempted to do. We look at this and we may think, goodness, what was the big deal? Satan's just tempting him to turn some stones into bread. He had the power to do it. He was hungry. Why would he not? Verse 1, Jesus was led of the Holy Spirit. It's all of God's Spirit leading Jesus to a desert to be tempted. This is a place where there is no water, where there is no food to live off of. Uh, I would assume Christ brought water with him, but it says for 40 days and 40 nights in verse 2, he was fasting. This was a time of devotion to the Lord. Now, we don't know the reasoning in his mind for his going to this desert. Perhaps he knew and understood the reasoning. The Spirit was leading him to be tempted. Perhaps this 40 days is not... 40 days of fasting and then at the very end these three temptations happen. There's many who believe that for this 40 day period he's enduring the trial of temptation. There may have been a number of temptations that were given to Christ by the devil in this time frame day after day after day and what we have is a summary of three of the most pressing temptations that were upon him. Very likely I believe that was the case. This was 40 days, the number of Trial, the number of testing. Think back even in parallel to the 40 days of wilderness wandering for the nation of Israel where it did not vindicate and validate their sinlessness, but just the opposite. Showed they need the grace of God and the mercy of God because they constantly bickered and complained and and forsook God and, and denied and did not trust God through that experience. Whereas Jesus, through 40 days and 40 nights, shows Himself to be the sinless Son of God. It rightly says that when 40 days and 40 nights had passed, he was hungry and then the tempter came to him, verse 3. Uh, What a right name, an accurate fitting name for Satan, for the devil. The tempter. The one who comes along to to distract from what God desires, to deceive and to, to destroy. The one who is out to lead you and I astray. He is the tempter. He is the roaring lion seeking whom he may devourer. The tempter came to Jesus, and he said to Jesus, hey, if you are, if you are the Son of God, and that word if can also imply since you are the Son of God, Satan knew who Christ was as God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. Since you're the Son of God, you're hungry. God the Father of His will through His Spirit has led you to this wilderness wandering, this wilderness temptation. Forty days and forty nights have passed. You are are hungry physically, there are the desires for food to to live physically off of. He says, why don't you just command these stones right here to be bread and and fulfill that desire of hunger? I think many of us would have said, If I've got the power to do it, I don't care what God's doing, I'm gonna turn the bread or the stones into bread. I'm starving to death over here. Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. What was wrong with Jesus simply turning these stones into bread? We must realize who Jesus is, and we must realize the mission Jesus came to accomplish, to understand the sinfulness of this act of turning these stones into bread. Jesus came to reveal the Father to humanity. Jesus came to accomplish perfectly the will of the Father, Jesus came in this first coming, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you think of all the divine acts of of Christ, the miracles of Jesus, they were never performed for his exaltation. They were always performed in service to humanity. They were always performed of the will of the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, never did Christ act independently of the will of the Father apart from the enabling dwelling power of the Spirit of God. What Satan is tempting Jesus to do here is to say the will of the Father in this experience, even at work through my hunger, is, is to be put aside. And the power of the Spirit to accomplish the will of God through the Son of God, is to be ignored. And he's tempting Jesus here to take things into his own hands. And to say, after all, I am the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, why are you hungering right now? You have the power to turn these rocks into bread at the power of your Word that spoke creation into existence. Satan says, Jesus, don't worry about the will of the Father. Don't worry about what the Spirit's doing through you. Take it into your own hand. These are desires that are within you and fulfill them. My goodness does Satan tempt us with that all the time. To take God-given desires and to fulfill them in ungodly ways, in independence from the God who even created those desires. We can think of the desire of food, the sin of gluttony. We can think of the desire of health and comfort and safety and security. And you have the sin of fear and anxiety and doubt against God. We can think of the most obvious application here, the God-given desire for sexual intimacy. And yet when you take a God given desire and seek to fulfill it in the temptation Satan gives in your own way, apart from the will of God who created it, we have lust. We have the lusts of the flesh. We have sin that manifests itself and sin leads unto death. The temptation here was for Jesus to ignore the will of the Father, ignore the enablement of the Holy Spirit, to take it into his own hands to fulfill and satisfy the God-given desire even. Naturally, he was fully human for for food, to feed his hunger. And Jesus' response, so powerful, He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. He says there's something a lot more important in this life than just meeting the physical desires of the flesh. That you can meet those desires and all these ways that you set forth to meet them of your own power. But in the end, it brings doom and devastation and destruction. It brings brokenness. It brings sin, wickedness. It's against God. And eternally, the consequences are severe. And Jesus knows this. And so He says it's not just about living off of bread alone. But we must live by every word that has come from the mouth of God. To know that His word is life. That His Word is life eternal. That His Word is glory eternal that surpasses the temporary pleasures of this life even in the pleasures of sin, especially in the pleasures of sin. Jesus said there's a lot more to living than fulfilling the desires of the flesh. There is God and there is eternity and there is a kingdom that is to come and there is a Word of God that has been given whereby we must obey. Whereby we must follow. second temptation. The pride of life. When I think of the pride of life, the expression always comes to mind, don't you know who I am? The pride of life. Pride that so easily can creep into all of our hearts, even over our Christianity, even over our, you know, the grace of God in our life that keeps us from sin and arrogance and, and the super spirituality can creep into our hearts. The pride of of life. Don't you know who I am? Pride was the reason of Lucifer's fall from heaven. It says in Isaiah, I believe, speaking of Lucifer, the angel of light, that he ascended, tried to ascend the throne of God, believing he could gain the glory and make himself like the Most High. It was because of this pride that Lucifer was expelled, kicked out of heaven. Verse 5, we read, Jesus is now taken by Satan, it says, into the holy city, into Jerusalem. Uh, The splendor even of Jerusalem. The city of God. The holy city of God. And Lucifer set him on top of the pinnacle of the temple. Many believe this was Herod's portico. Um, Herod, who rebuilt the temple on the southeast corner of it, designed this basically larger tower, and it overlooked even the cliff which led down to the the Kedon Valley. And so many believed it was this place of great height, some 450 foot down uh, to the valley bottom, Uh, this pinnacle built on on the backside of the temple overlooking this valley that, that Lucifer has brought Jesus to. And he says to him, if you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then Lucifer, Satan, the devil, the tempter, actually quotes the Word of God. He knows Scripture. He says He shall give His angels charge over you. Isn't that what the Bible says about you, who who are the Christ, who is the Messiah? Angels are going to look after you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. God has declared this truth about you. His angels will keep you and guard over you. Jesus, why don't you show yourself to be the Son of God, by jumping off of this pinnacle and let the people be amazed as the angels come to, to your aid as you fall to give you a soft landing where you jump and do not die. The pride of life. Jesus answers, and He answers by quoting what I think brings this temptation into a... To me, it's the most mysterious of all the temptations. And the application of it is one of the most profound to us in church life. He he quotes, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Taken from Numbers, an experience in Deuteronomy, where the people of God were groaning and moaning about being led into the desert and, and getting... <laughs> Aggravated at Moses to the point of wanting to even take his life unless God would give them the food and the water that they were desiring. You shall not tempt. You shall not test. Put your God to the test. The Lord, your God. Satan knows God's Word. I don't think he misquoted it. There's, some, there, there's a, a little phrase that's left out that some say he's misquoting God's Word. I think he's quoting, and he is quoting, from the Septuagint, which was the commonly used Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible in that day and age. It's what Jesus would often quote. And so I don't think he's misquoting the Scripture. He's quoting the the Word of God in relation to who Christ is and in relation to what God would do for the Christ. He rightly quotes the Word of God, and he twists the application of it, though, to bring what was meant to be a, a reason of trust in the Lord to to twist it, to tempt Jesus to put God to the test, to test the Lord. That the passage is originally given in order that trust may be established, faith in the will of the Father, no matter what Christ would endure. And Satan twists the application to say, hey, God has said He's going to take care of you. Why don't you jump down off of this pinnacle and, and put God to the test? Prove the Word of God true by your foolish action in order that you may be validated and vindicated before this audience as the Son of God and receive the glory that would come to you because of it. And Jesus responds, it's written, You shall not tempt, you shall not test the Lord your God. He interprets Scripture with Scripture. He knows that Scripture will never contradict Scripture. And so while Satan tries to twist it to lead him to put God to a test, Jesus rightly responds with another passage that clearly defines it. No, that's not what this passage is meant to be applied in my life as. I'm not supposed to put God to a test whereby I'm forcing his hand to divinely act in my life in order to validate the arrogance of my presumption upon him as I step out. There is a great danger in presuming upon the Lord and in putting God to the test. I've seen a number of applications of this in my life, illustrations even of this. Speaking to one person who has said, kind of jokingly, kind of not, I don't need to wear my seatbelt, life and death is in the hands of God, right? Right? You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Don't put God to the test. Yes, God has your life in His hand, but that doesn't mean that we foolishly step out at our arrogance assumption presuming upon the Lord we're going to force His hand to act and divinely intervene. You're testing God. You're not trusting God with foolishness in that action. He gives us a brain. He gives us wisdom. He's given us safety measures in life. It's not a lack of faith to put my seatbelt on. It's common sense. (laughs) It's wisdom. It's trusting God to protect me even through the means of common grace that He's given to humanity. He's given us an intellect and a brain to understand if you hit a car at a certain speed without a seatbelt, you're going to go flying through the window. If you have a seatbelt on, guess what? You're probably not going to fly through the window. There's a foolish presumption, a testing of God. And that's a simple illustration of it. I've seen it within a church even, of a a mentality of, you know finances may not be great, and we don't know how we're ever going to afford it in the future but but I've got this grand vision that we build this massive building, this massive sanctuary and and you know we just got to we, we got to step out and do it, and we know God's going to provide for it, and we step out in arrogance and presume upon the Lord to force his hand to act to accomplish something that he may not even be in at all here's the thing when you when you're talking about having the faith to get out of the boat and walk on the water. You better make sure Jesus is walking on the water, calling you out. It's not good when you step out and Jesus is actually in the boat and you're stepping out to walk on the water because you want to be the one walking on the water. You shall not test the Lord your God. The name it and claim it mentality that so many, don't have the bigger house and the better truck and the blessed life because you just haven't you haven't you gotta put God to the test you've got to you gotta name it and claim it and then and then act as if it's true in faith and step out. Be careful be careful thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God you you should not test the Lord your God the third Or the second temptation, the the pride of life, testing, tempting in a way the Lord to force his hand to act because of your desire, your ambition, your dreams, your will. The third temptation, the lust of the eyes, verse 8, the devil takes him up on an exceedingly high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. But this is a visual thing. He saw in this vision all the peoples of the earth, all of their kingdoms, all of their glory, and Satan says, just bow down and worship me, and I'll give it all to you. No no suffering, no betrayal, no mockery, no whipping, no crown of thorns upon your head, no cross, no crucifixion, no death, no burial. Bow down to me, Lucifer says, and it's all yours. The glory of the kingdoms of the earth. Could Satan make such an offer? Yes, he could, of the earthly kingdoms. This is his domain. He is the prince of the power of the air. And so he made a legitimate offer. Come to the dark side. (laughs) Turn, and it's all yours. Some of you got the reference, some of you didn't. It, It is a parallel of the temptation here of the devil to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just turn and it's all yours. The glory of all the earth can be yours. But Jesus rightly knew and understood the brokenness of these kingdoms and the temporary fleeting nature of these kingdoms. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, the one and only true living God, and Him only shall you serve. That to receive the glory of these temporary broken earthly kingdoms means I will be worshiping you, Lucifer, means I will be bowing the knee to you. And there is one true God who is worthy of worship. There is one true God whom must be served. lust of the eyes, so easily are we distracted from the glory of the kingdom of God by the things we see in this life, and Lucifer, the tempter, Satan, dangles them before your eyes, and we in our covetousness and our hearts desire it, seek it, and all of a sudden we are living for the glories of the kingdoms of this earth. In a way, bowing the knee to Satan himself when there's eternal glory and an eternal kingdom that is to come. So how do we overcome temptation? How do we follow this pattern of Jesus in order to to stand against the sin that so easily besets us, to put it aside, to overcome it? Some of you right now, I would imagine Satan's got your number. He just dials it, calls it out, and and onward you go into whatever he dangles before you. How do we we battle that? How do we fight against indwelling sin within our heart, within our lives? Three simple, practical applications of Jesus' example. First, you must know God's Word you must know the truth the words of life god's word for you look at jesus's example verse 4 but he answered it is written jesus knew the word of god and he knew what the word of god had to say regarding the immediate temptation that lucifer was bringing before him verse 7 jesus said to him it is written again verse 10 then jesus said to him away with you satan for it is to have any chance at defeating sin in your life, you need to know the righteous ways of God that you are to follow, or you'll be deceived, you'll be blinded, you'll have no hope of walking in the light, because this is the light, His word, His ways are the light. Psalm 119 and verse 11, Thy word have I hidden my heart, that I might not sin against Thee, that, that I've taken God Your word. And I've, I've I've not only read it and studied it and heard, heard sermons every Sunday preached on it, but I've actually hidden it in my heart. I've memorized it because I know God, your word, your word is not a boundary that keeps me from what's best in life, but your word is actually light that leads me to glory. Do you realize that this morning about the Word of God? The Word of God is not the fence, the barricade that keeps you from enjoying what is actually most fulfilling and satisfying in life. That's what Satan wants you to believe. That's what the world wants you to believe. And there is a pleasure of sin, but hear me, it only lasts for a season. And then comes the brokenness. God's Word is actually a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. It it is what leads us in the ways of glory, in the ways of the blessings of God, not only that are to come, but in the here and now. The greatest, most satisfying, fulfilling, blessed life you can live is a life of total surrendering and total obedience to the Word of God that He has given to us. It's not only what is most glorifying to God, it is actually what is most beneficial, what is best for you and for me this morning, know God's word. Secondly, not only must you know it, but you must rightly apply it. You must be wise in your interpretation and application of His word, because Satan, who he is, he is deceitful. He knows God's word too. He's the same one that appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden. And what did he use there? He used God's word. And then he twisted it. This is he does with Jesus in the second temptation. He he uses God's Word, but he twists the application of it to lead not to trust in God, but to lead to testing God, putting Him to force Him into action. A wrong application of the Scripture is just as dangerous, if not more so dangerous than, than not knowing the Scripture altogether. Must rightly apply the word of God, interpreting scripture with scripture, the whole canon, the whole scripture, knowing that it never contradicts itself. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly handling the word of God, not not twisting it to justify our sinful desires and our sinful actions, but, but rightly letting God's word speak unto us and rightly interpreting it in light of its context and the original meaning and rightly taking those principles and applying them to our lives today in the fullness of the revelation of God's word, not twisting one verse to accommodate our sinful lusts. Know God's Word. Rightly, apply God's Word. Thirdly, you must submit to God's Word. I'm a preacher who's been in a lot of Bible college and seminary for a number of years. Raised in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I know the Word of God pretty well. And I know the right application of God often because thankfully I've been under preachers and teachers that rightly have have taught me how to apply the Word of God. But I am not sinless, and my wife says amen. And it's not because I don't know the Word of God, and it's not because I don't know the right application of the Word of God, it's because I don't always submit to the Word of God. And this goes back to verse 1 that we looked at last week. All of this is not possible unless you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God within you even before that temptation comes. That if you don't have the Spirit of God opening your eyes not only to see the truth of God's Word and the right application of God's Word, but to empower you to have a soul, a spirit that submits to that Word of God in that hour, in that moment of temptation, you will fail. You need a Spirit within you, at work within you. To lead you to surrendering, to submission to the Word of God that you know and the Word of God that you're rightly applying to your, your circumstance. James chapter 4 and verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There must be a submission to the Lord in it to realize, even in the, the press, pressing heat of that moment of temptation, God's ways are best that sin is dangerous and sin has consequences and I'm going to have the Word of God within me that I may quote it and apply it and then submit to it in the midst of the temptation. Some of you have no Scripture memorized whatsoever and your life is filled with sin and you have no sword of the Spirit to battle temptation because you've never committed to memorizing God's Word and you need some Scripture. And you need a right application of it. And you need the Spirit of God within you to lead you in that moment to submit to that. You need a game plan for fighting temptation. We plan everything else in life. What's your game plan? Are you looking at something you ought not to be looking at? Maybe you need Psalm 101, verse 3. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them who turn aside. It shall not cleave unto me. Or maybe Matthew 5 and 28, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in his own heart. Maybe you're dealing with a temptation of laziness and you need Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23 and 24. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you're going to receive the reward of your inheritance. For ye serve, for you serve the Lord. Hear me do the E's and V's and V's because I grew up on the King James and I'm so thankful for programs that instill that in me. Maybe you got a problem with your language. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupt communication proceed from your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Maybe you're, you're struggling with the temptation of bitterness and you need to put to memory Ephesians 4 and verse 32 and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God through Christ has forgiven you. Maybe you struggle with anger. Now you need to put to memory James 1:19 and 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Maybe you struggle with fear. Isaiah 41.10 might be good to put in your box of ammunition to fight the temptation of the devil. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteousness. The list can go on and on of the temptations that each and every one of us struggle with. The question isn't, do you struggle with temptation? If you've got blood flowing through your veins right now, you are struggling with temptation. The real question is, are you fighting it? Are you, are you fighting the temptation that is thrown your way, living in the mess of this world that we live in, where, where the prince of the power of the air is at work all the time and in much uh, everything, all things that we come across. How are you doing? Do you know God's Word? Do you apply God's Word? Are you submitting to God's Word? Verse 11, and we'll close. Then, then, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him.
1: Heavenly Father, I pray
0: this morning that you would encourage, convict, or enlighten so many believers who have never learned this elementary lesson you give to us on fighting temptation. Christian life is not a life of putting it on autopilot, a life of ease, a life of comfort. The Christian life is war. It's a battle every day living in a fallen world to put off the flesh, to put on the spirit, to know your word and have it within us that when the temptations of this life come, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that we would be equipped to battle it, to stand against it, to not give way and give in. To not bring shame to our name, but more importantly, Your name as a believer, as a Christian. Lord, to honor Christ, overcoming sin in our life by His power because He has overcome for us. Lord, I pray, sanctify every believer. Give strength to endure temptation. Lord, if there be one in here who doesn't know You, may they even now be convicted of their sin without believe upon Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray,